Welcome to the University of South Dakota's podcast, Credit Hour. On this special series, Voices Amplified, we welcome the many individuals throughout our USD community that have unique insight, expertise, and experience with some of the most important issues impacting our communities. Join us as we grow our awareness on topics like social justice, criminal justice reform, and systemic racism. We hope that through these conversations, we can learn not only new perspectives and information, but also challenge ourselves to identify ways we can contribute to creating lasting change. On today's episode, we speak with Dr. Dianis Popova, an assistant professor at the USD School of Education, about topics like critical social justice theory, implicit bias, and more. Dr. Popova, how are you doing this morning? Great, thank you. Um, you know, first, I'd like to just ask, what do you do at USD? Um, I am a, an assistant professor of curriculum instruction in the School of Education, and I'm also the program advisor for the um, ELL minor, uh, English language learner minor, and our master's and doctorate program for culturally and linguistically diverse learners. You know, I'm curious, how did you get interested in your areas of research and teaching? Well, um, you know, I'm actually originally from Trinidad and Tobago. I'm from a multiracial family in Trinidad and Tobago, which is an island off the coast of South America. I came to the United States um, when I was 19 to, to go to college as an undergraduate. And sort of coming into the United States, I was sort of faced with some challenges to how I identified because I had not ever seen myself. I didn't live in a black and white world. Um, so coming here and, and everything was sort of framed by being black or, or being white and sort of trying to navigate that racial binary and sort of making sense of the injustices I saw in the world. So I started off with international relations and international politics, and then I decided to go into teaching just to sort of pay for those degrees. And I fell in love with it. Um, and I started working with English language learners and realizing that a lot of the history that I knew was wrong, a lot of the stuff that I knew was half-sided or, or part-sided, and that sort of drove me into this area of research. You know, I'm curious, how did, how did you make your way to Vermilion? Oh, uh, I um, graduated with my doctorate uh, from Virginia Tech, and um, I really was intrigued by um, sort of the need at USD, the, the desire to sort of improve or to um, work toward um, more justice-related ideas and areas. Um, well, I think that's a good segue into what we wanted to talk to you today about. Um, you know, you have an expertise in something, I guess, called critical social justice theory. First, just what is critical social justice theory? You know, how did it get started? How did it get developed? Well, I'll try to be as brief as possible because it's a pretty lengthy story, but critical social justice really has its base in critical pedagogy, which is a philosophy of education and social movement um, sort of centered on the idea that knowledge is never politically neutral. So in this um, framework, teaching is seen as a political act because of power dynamics and the sort of the inescapable roots of how our global society has been formed. So social justice and democracy are seen as integral to teaching and learning. And when the Brazilian um, Paulo Freire, he's an educator and philosopher, when he sort of initially expelled these ideas, he centered it on creating change, sort of facilitating emancipation from oppression, um, right, to the, through the, the development of a critical consciousness, which is how we achieve an in-depth understanding of our world um, when we allow for perception and we allow for contradiction. And I think um, critical social justice specifically built on that, that theory built on that, and it refers to specific theoretical perspectives that recognize that inequality in itself is deeply embedded in the fabric of our society. Um, and within that framework, uh, 
we recognize that equality is there, and we think about inequality broadly in terms of race, socioeconomic status, gender, ability, sexual orientation. And the work of critical social justice theory is to disrupt those deeply rooted hierarchies and the power structures that really privilege Western knowledge historically and in contemporary society. It's really a collaborative approach to addressing injustice and oppression uh, that really recognizes sort of the relevance of intersectionality and the power of what we call emancipatory education, education that helps us towards true freedom. You know, I, I guess how do um, you know prejudices manifest themselves in you know the education system? Well, a lot of prejudices um, are we're not really aware of them. They're sort of built into our society, and we refer to a lot of these prejudices um, sort of implicit, like what we call implicit bias or unconscious bias. And I think um, the way that we frame our ideas and the way that we frame our worldviews are centered on our upbringing, our experiences, and we have to realize that everything around us shapes who we are and how we see the world. So our, our uh, prejudices, our, our biases are a reflection of the attitudes and the stereotypes that affect our understandings, our worldviews, our actions, and our decisions, but it's the stuff at the back of your mind. Like your, your prejudice, I mean, there's, there's um, explicit prejudices where people are hateful. Like I've had people walk up to me and say, you know, I don't like and throw in the N-word. Like that's explicit prejudice. But for a lot of people, and where we find a, a big challenge in critical social justice is the fact that a lot of people are simply unaware of the fact that they have bias because we put this into a, a dichotomy of good people and bad people. And people say, well, I'm a good person. I would never be prejudiced. But that's not the reality of the situation. We, a lot of times your, your prejudices, um, when they're sort of these implicit prejudices, they don't align with your declared beliefs. You can be um, locally anti-racist and still have these prejudices if you don't address them. Uh, we see this stuff in you know, school administration, in scholarship, um, how we award scholarships, in law enforcement, in employment, healthcare. You know, there's a lot of different examples and um, how those prejudices um, affect uh, society and our lives. And did you want to specifically, I, I want to give a couple examples, if possible. Yeah, no, that, that was, um, did you yeah, want I wanted to give to, examples? Yeah, for sure. I wanted oh. to ask what would be like, you know, how, do, how does implicit bias you know, manifest itself? Um, one really good example, a couple of good studies that have been done recently, and the work is still emerging. But we have found, uh, I think back in 2012, there was a really good um, study um, with pediatricians and looking at pediatricians' racial attitudes and how they treat patients. And they found that the more um, implicit or, or implicit prejudices or biases that they had um, either toward white people, as in saying, you know, white people are in this way, or, or the more prejudices they had saying, well, black people don't do this because. Even if they didn't realize that those were built in, we found that uh, doctors were, able, were more likely to prescribe painkillers, both for, pedi for pediatric patients and adult patients, um, to white patients as opposed to black patients. There's a lot of ideas that are built into our old system that, um, from back in slavery that uh, black people feel less pain, that we have less sensitive nerve endings. A lot of that is pervasive in the medical field. Um, and I've, I have a textbook from 2015 that actually says that, a nursing textbook. Um, a good example for me personally was um, I went to see a doctor in town recently, um, and uh, they were giving me some medication. And they said, you know, 
Um, I usually just give this medication, uh, but you know, you I noticed that you were a professor, you were faculty on, ca- on campus, right? But, you know, you you probably have you're probably smart enough to make your own choice. So here's another option that isn't quite as toxic. Um, and I thought to myself, well, I'm glad I got the option. But part of me was like, if if I hadn't told you, yes, if I wasn't a professor, you would would you would be assuming that I'm not smart enough. Um, to make my own choice, uh, whether because of my background or, or whatever else. So those things are sort of built in. We see them in criminal sentencing. We found that um, uh, negative judgments that people have about individuals with Afrocentric features, like dark skin, big noses, full lips, um, or wide noses specifically, they found that when you control for numerous factors, when you control for the seriousness of the offense or the number of prior offenses, Individuals with prominent Afrocentric features receive longer sentences than their less Afrocentrically featured counterparts. So it's really throughout every aspect of our society. And the, the main bias that we're talking about right now is centered on sort of law enforcement and legal systems in terms of how they interact with people of color, specifically um, black and indigenous people of color. Um, and we find lots of ways to navigate that. We've internalized all these norms and expectations as normal, as right, as what we expect without really investigating their background. So, you know, you could have, um, you see this in disability studies where you see where adults um, sometimes infantilize intellectually challenged um, uh, folks into, the, into adulthood by saying, oh, well, they can't get married. Um, you see that a lot with, with folks with um, genetic conditions where we decide uh, based on our experiences whether or not that person fits into our norms. And it's really easy to let that, if you're not, if you don't make it a conscious process, it's very easy to make that, um, have that influence how you, the, the choices you make, the decisions you make in your daily life. Well, and that was the next question I wanted to ask. I mean, you talk about the built-in nature of implicit biases. I mean, how can people, I guess, be more aware of their implicit bias or recognize um, how those implicit biases affect decisions that they're making every day? Well, a lot of it really looks, in terms of how to address those, it's really about, one, the intention. So starting off with the being, being willing to understand that you don't know all the parts of the story and going through a process of, of self-learning, I guess. So, you know, taking the initiative. So self-learning is when someone takes the initiative, either with or without someone else's help, to you know, you, you validate your learning needs, figure out what it is, what is it, what do I need to know? Where is my gap? Um, you construct the goals, like what do I want to learn? You figure out where to get the information, and then when you're done, you say, okay, what have I learned? How am I going to apply this? And it's it's a lifelong process, um, but it has to be intentional and has to be purposeful. So there are, um, you know, we we face right now in, in the United States the results of generations of miseducation and the historical erasure of stories of non-white Americans and their ancestors. So in a lot of these cases, um, a lot of these biases are set from that struggle. So we need to actively say, okay, I recognize that I'm missing information. Um, And having these hard conversations, uh, I remember being using paper library catalogs to do research. It's 2020. We have, as long as we can train ourselves to discern fact and propaganda, we have unprecedented access to um, information and learning resources. So people can choose to select information, be aware of 
the sources of their information, make sure they're centering the voices of people who've lived those experiences and just centering themselves as part of the narrative, and reading. You know, being a learner, really understand that you're going to feel cognitive dissonance. You're going to feel pushback. You're going to say, well, no, 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 that's not what I was taught because you weren't taught the full story. Um, we are notorious for the fact that our history books really just give one side or parts of sides. Um, when we talk about Martin Luther King, we talk about his pacifist side. We don't talk about his activist side as well. So, you know, the way that he combined both those sides to, 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 to speak his truth. So, you know, in centering um, black scholars, I know right now um, uh, the work of Robin D'Angelo and Ibram X. Kendi is very popular. I think they're both at the top of the bestseller list because of their work around um, this topic. But there's other authors out there, Christopher Emden, Roxanne Gay, Bettina Love, Zenith Evans-Williams, um, Ijeoma Oluo, I think her name is pronounced, has a great interactive workbook called Me and White Supremacy um, that helps people sort of work through their own miseducation, their own desire to learn and to know and to do better. So I think a lot of it has to do with that sort of conscious and intentional desire to move forward and then taking the steps to get you there. Um, to shift focus here for a second, you know, I think another concept that is often brought up in discussions about race is this term privilege. I guess, what is that term? What does it mean to you? How do people experience something like privilege and maybe not even recognize it? Um, well, privilege, I mean, in its basic form, it's just an unearned advantage. So I am being awarded um, an entitlement or advantage based on my class, age, disability, you know, race, gender, sexual orientation, religion, etc. And privilege, particularly in the United States and our structure, it exists because of historic, enduring racism and those biases we just talked about. So unpacking privilege is really hard. Because many people, especially if they are faced with their own privilege, either get offended or they feel guilty when they are faced with evidence of their own privilege. So there's privilege connected to all of those categories I mentioned. For example, I lack privilege based on my race and my gender, among other aspects of my identity. But as I mentioned earlier, being university faculty has given me privilege in other areas. So I can identify that I have that privilege as a faculty member. And I can take it, I can use that privilege wherever it's possible to, to use it. So in my case, you know, I'm tenure-track faculty within a university system. I have more privilege than non-tenure-track faculty. And it's my responsibility to use my privilege and to advocate for non-tenure-track faculty in spaces where they lack my privilege. And in turn, tenured faculty have the responsibility to use their privilege to advocate for both non-tenured and um, both tenure-track and non-tenure-track faculty as well because they hold privilege in spaces where we don't. So in the last few years, the most heavily discussed aspect of privilege has been racial privilege, or as you mentioned, white privilege. Um, and with white privilege, it is a key part of the foundation of this society because this society, whiteness is valued. Okay, So a lot of what we value is connected to whiteness. And we have to realize, and I think Angela Davis noted um, in some of her work, that white privilege and whiteness is woven into the very fabric of this country. You remember, all men are created equal did not apply to women, and it especially did not apply to the enslaved. So, you know, from the very beginning, this country has been seated and was built on the back of racism and bias. So that 
we can't escape it. You're sort of swimming in those waters with just your birth in this space. So, you know, with white privilege, people tend to push back. They, they feel cognitive dissonance. They say, well, no, I'm not privileged. I worked hard for everything that I have. And that's, that's great. Um, it's really important to note, though, that having privilege doesn't mean you didn't work for it. You didn't work for what you've achieved. Having white privilege just means that in all the challenges you may have faced in your life, your skin color was not one of those challenges. And that's what we need to focus. It's not an attack against what you've been awarded. It's about how are you using or being aware of that privilege in a way that does not perpetuate that privilege and those ideas. Um, you know, essentially, you want to know that you've been awarded these privileges, whether you want them or not. It has nothing to do with you're a good or a bad person, but we have to recognize that they exist. The most important question of privilege is, are you willing to unpack your privilege? And once you've done that, how are you going to use your privilege to benefit those who lack that same privilege? Um, you know, one great example that I've heard, uh, I think it was from Arlen Hamilton, who's a founder of a venture capital firm that supports companies um, that have POC or LGBT, LGBTQ founders. And they said, uh, you know, if you're at a concert and someone in front of you, someone is shorter near you and you're both attending the show, you let the shorter person stand in front of you so that you can both see. It doesn't mean that you're giving up your concert-going experience by being kind and recognizing that you have more to, in this particular context um, than someone else. You know, I think you might have answered my next question. I wanted to get into the idea of, like, what being an ally means. You know, I hear that term, I think, again, floated a lot on social media. Um, and, and I don't know. I mean, can you unpack that that concept for us? I mean, wh what does being an ally mean? Um, how does one go about that? Um, and, and is it the right way, I guess, to conceptualize? Well, I, I don't know if it's so much a, a right way and a wrong way because it's something that we are growing and learning through. Um, but because allyship is pretty layered, there are surface layers and deeper layers or representations of allyship. So generally, to be an ally is someone who stands up with or who advocates for a person or a, a group of persons outside of their own in-group or, or their own identity group. Um, unfortunately, allyship has been and still is performative for some people. So the idea of saying, yes, I stand with you, or yes, I will advocate for you, it's really easy to say that, um, but it's a lot harder for some people to implement that. Um, there have been spaces, uh, or lots of research showing, you know, there are spaces where someone claims allyship, but when, when they're really needed, they disappear, either physically or, or their, their, their advocacy disappears. So ask yourself, how many times have you heard a friend or a family member or a colleague use an unfair or unfounded stereotype or, or say something racist or imply their group of people or a person is less than because of their group identity and said nothing, maybe just rolled your eyes or gone, oh, this good person, you know, or, or just moved on because you didn't feel they were worth your time. But people of color have gotten used to calling those things out and having their allies remain silent in public. And then on the side... We get lots and lots of messages, texts and emails and Facebook messages going, you know what, I'm so glad you said that. That really needed to be said. But when we're saying it, no one's there at our backs. So what this leads to, what it represents is a type of what we call performative allyship. It's a show. And it can be well-intentioned. Someone can really want to be an ally and still choose performative displays of allyship. So things like public, like PR, PR-type responses that we've been seeing 
all over the place the past few weeks. Um, white fragility, so that response of, well, no, it's not, it's not this or it's not that in response to, to ideas around white supremacy and, um, and white privilege. Um, only making a statement when you're called out or virtual, virtual signaling. So you do something kind, but it has to be on Facebook. So everyone has to know how kind you are. When you center yourself, when it's to your benefit, when you're doing it because everybody else is doing it, all those things are performative. They're not real. They're not creating concrete action. They're not creating change. So what's more meaningful in that discussion around allies is sort of growing accomplices or co-conspirators instead. So essentially an, an accomplice or a co-conspirator is an ally who is willing to make a sacrifice. There were some great examples of this during the civil rights movement of white allies who they knew they might have lost jobs. They might have lost family members. They might be beaten um, you know, uh, in a riot or um, that kind of situation. But they still, they still did it. They still did the right thing because they felt in their core that it was the right thing. One of the best examples I've heard, um, Dr. Bettina Love gave a really great example. So back in 2015, uh, some folks in South Carolina got together and decided that the Confederate flag in front of the state capitol had to come down. And they decided that a black woman had to take it down. So they taught Bree Newsom who was later arrested, uh, but they taught Bree Newsom, who was a black woman, how to climb. They taught her, they got her bail money ready. They got everything set up so that she could pull this flag down. James Tyson was a white man in the group who did not know her before this happened. And when they got the call to go ahead and to take this flag down, Mr. Tyson recognized the privilege that was awarded to his white body in that space. And instead of standing outside the gate as like a, a lookout, he stood inside the gate around the flagpole with her. He used his allyship in action, and that's what makes him an accomplice or a co-conspirator. So when the police stepped in and they decided they were going to tase the flagpole to get her down, all he did was he made eye contact with them and he put his hand on the flagpole and touched it because he knew in that moment that they were not going to tase a white man in that situation. So he used his state as an ally, and he recognized that, you know what, they might do it, but he was going to put himself in the way. We saw this a lot in the George George Floyd protests, where you had a lot of white youth um, standing in front of black youth and other youth of color to protect them from tear gas and rubber bullets. They were using their bodies uh, and their, their stance um, as a way of defense. You know, so essentially, to boil it down to like a simple concept, you picture like a private dinner table where not everyone is welcome. So an ally is someone who eats dinner at that dinner table and advocates for you to be included while they're still potentially reaping the benefits of an unjust system. An accomplice or a co-conspirator will block the door and refuse to sit at that table until everyone gets included as well. So, you know, there's different layers of that, and allyship is really important, but it needs to be real. It needs to be tangible. It needs to be working toward change, not just a performance um, to, to, to make it look like you are doing something that you might not be doing in your real life. You know, so... A few weeks ago, um, you know, there was like this online movement. I think it was called Blackout Tuesday. And, you know, it was when a lot of people on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, whatever, um, posted just a black photo to sort of, I guess, show support for communities of colors. Is that would, would that be an example of maybe, you know, too performative an act, an, uh, of active, activism for you? I mean, is there something to be said, I guess, for like a show of solidarity or does do you need to, I guess, do more concrete steps? 
I think both. I think um, the shore solidarity is important. Um, but it also, when I, when I, that particular day, I remember thinking, thinking where, where were all of you all the time? Hmm. So this solidarity is great now, but, you know, when someone, one of my students called me an N-word a few years ago in class, you know, when people spit on me and my son when we're walking because of the color of my skin, where are these people who all of a sudden are advocates for Black Lives Matter? Where were you in faculty meetings? Where were you in grocery stores? Where were you when you were needed? And it's wonderful that people are coming to awareness because there are a lot of people who simply were unaware and they're sort of waking up and they're going, oh my gosh, I, I, I just wasn't aware. Like, I am now in this space where I feel like I need to do something. And in those spaces, sharing that, um, sharing that support is a great idea. It's a great movement at the very beginning. So in that case, we're drawing attention to injustice. We're telling our leaders, hey, this matters to all of us. This matters to most of us. And that's really important. But by itself, it's not enough. By itself, without following it up with actually trying to create change beyond that, it's just not enough to do that on its own. And that's where it can become performative. It's one thing to post the black picture and then to make sure that in your own life, in your own spheres, that you can try to make change in whatever small ways you can. But it's a whole other thing to post the black picture and then continue life as normal with no changes because that, that's where it becomes performative. So, you know, it can take on a life of its own in that case and redirect attention away from the real issues. Um, you know, like right now we start off with uh, things like sort of re reallocating funds um, under the calls to defund the police. Since then, we have been bombarded with um, Black Lives Matter statements from organizations. We've been bombarded with, okay, well, we'll take this character off TV or we'll, we'll take this book off the bookshelf. We'll do all these things. And people are like, but that's, that's not what we asked for. That's nice, very nice. But we still want to come back to this main, this main issue that we're trying to address. So that sort of performative, when it stays performative, it can really take attention away from the issues we're trying to really make sense of. So what matters to me as a person is what do you do in real life? It's nice to see that black picture, but how and where are you using your privilege to support the cause? What are you doing beyond starting book clubs? Because there's all sorts of book clubs right now. Beyond the book club, what are you doing to change ideas, policies, programs, practices in your local community, in your place of work, around your dinner table? So that's what really matters. So as long as both those things are being done together, then th those shows of solidarity are great. But alone, um, it, it tends to, to lose its flavor after a while because I've been here before. I've seen these every five, ten years or so, like every, every cycle, we get these shows of solidarity, but nothing changes. We need change. You know, you brought up, um, like, corporations putting out, you know, Black Lives Matter, you know, PR statements. Um, and I, yeah, I, I always wonder about just the like the co-option of, of some of these statements or like the NBA right there putting out statements on jerseys and stuff like that. Again, I, I, it might be a similar question to what I just asked, but is it important when those organizations um, put statements out like that? Or are they, you know, maybe co-opting a, a larger movement for their own purposes? I mean, how, how do you evaluate that? by their actions. So for me, it's, it's, and for, I think for a lot of the scholars uh, who do work around um, equity, diversity, inclusion, et cetera, it's about their actions. So the statements are nice, but what are you doing? What does your board of directors look like? 
how, you know, how are you incorporating diversity into your hiring practices? How are you thinking about equity in the way that you address institutional and systemic change? Because we can address individual one-on-one change and people tend to say, oh, look, we did it. We're not, I'm not racist or I'm not biased. See, look, I support Black Lives Matter. But that's a Band-Aid to a, a greater um, problem. I think uh, in a recent segment with Dr. Chandler, um, I think it was when she mentioned that, you know, even if all of us wake up tomorrow and we have no racist ideas, the systems built by those ideas are still there. So if we're not taking action, then it's just it's just rhetoric. It's just words. You know, this, I guess, kind of goes back to some of the things that we, we talked about before in terms of like implicit bias. But I, I want to unpack what, what Dr. Chandler said, and we should bring her on and, and talk to her about it as well. But when we, when we talk about the idea of advantages that are built into the system, I mean, again, I'm just going to be honest. As like a, a, a white person, I probably don't realize the advantages that I have many time, I guess. Are there examples that you could give of like advantages um, that you as, as a black woman um, don't have or don't experience. I, 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 this is an inartful way to ask this question. I feel like, but I, I want to like dig into that. I mean, like you know, how, how do you prove something that doesn't exist, right? I mean, if if I don't realize I have the privilege, how do I I know what my privilege is? Um, I guess how do we explore that? Well, I think a lot of it is listening. So a lot for a lot of years, um, even before I ever came to this country, um, there there is no shortage of both research and anecdotal evidence that shows us these biases. But what has happened is people go, are you sure? You know, that gaslighting happens. So um, people go, you sure you didn't misinterpret that? Maybe they didn't mean it that way. And the idea is, listen, that's the same as if an assault survivor says, this is what happened to me. And you go, are you sure? Did you not misinterpret that? And it's belittling. So when you, when you think about how you explore your bias, part of it comes with simply listening, listening to the experiences of Black and Indigenous people of color and other um, non-BIPOC um, who are telling these stories. They're telling you what they're experiencing. Um, I think for me, particularly as a Black woman, uh, people tend to assume that I'm undereducated or uneducated um, they tend to assume that people always go, oh, my gosh, you speak such good English. I'm like, yes, English was my first language. Um, so there's, there's all this stuff that sort of comes into play uh, with those ideas of investigating bias. But I would say start with listening, start with reading, centering the voices of people who've lived through these. There is no shortage of information and, and evidence um, in our history about how those things um, out. I could say the first day of my new job, um, I spent an hour in the HR office uh, because no one could find my file. They had two stacks. One stack was for faculty and one stack was for staff. And I was in a t-shirt and jeans. Um, and I came in with my son in a sling to, you know, my, my toddler to get my final hiring paperwork and get it all signed. And they couldn't find me. And I was panicked. I was like, oh my gosh, I just moved 1,800 miles. Did I not really get this job? Um, but after a while, they found me, but they had spent 45 minutes looking in the staff stack. And in 45 minutes, it never occurred to anyone to look in the faculty stack because they couldn't even imagine that I would be faculty. 
couldn't look like it. And their, you know, they, their, their impression or their perspective on what faculty looked like. I didn't fit that bill. So that is, and that's why I say, you know, a lot of it is systemic and sort of built into how we see things. It's not just individual. It comes in through a greater system. So when you're looking at bias, you've also got to look not only at your own bias and be aware of, hey, you're going to have bias. There's just no way around it. Don't feel bad when you have it. It's about identifying it and then taking steps to address it. So, you know, and then, of course, looking at the systemic picture of, around you in your space. Look at, you know, whether it's your job, your family, your, your community, and looking for where those things are present and visible as well. You know, one of the topics that we wanted to discuss was this idea of self-learning. I mean, is that what you mean when, when you say that you need to kind of, you know, investigate and, and do a little bit more listening? Um, is that what self-learning is? Yes, pretty much. It's, it's the idea of taking that initiative and deciding, you know, this is something I need to know. And we are seeing a lot of that happening right now. And as I mentioned, there's lots of book clubs, lots of people buying these books to, to sort of learn more about what is going on. Um, but that, that tends to happen, again, with these cycles. And then, you know, six months down the road, the book's collecting dust on a shelf and people have gone back to their normal lives. And the people who are marginalized and oppressed remain marginalized and oppressed. Um, you know, the, the idea is that as adults, it's our responsibility to take responsibility for our learning and to fill the gaps that may have been there in what we learned growing up. We know that there are gaps, so it's our responsibility to fill them. And for kids, we can help them avoid those gaps. We can sort of work on the next generation now. So we, you know, right now, a lot of people, um, particularly in less racially diverse communities, tend to avoid the hard conversations with school-age children because we never had that opportunity or they never had that opportunity themselves to navigate those conversations. Um, you know, people are always surprised when I talk to my son about George Floyd, he's six, you know, or when I talk to him about the fact that this is what you may be told in school about Thanksgiving, buddy, but this is really what happened. He's six and he knows the real story of Thanksgiving. I use age-appropriate concepts and language, and I don't give him as many details as I would give him as he gets older, but it's my job to make sure that he has a full picture of our history and, and how we got to where we are now. So we can choose to ignore those gaps and fill them in. Or naturally, they will be filled in with fear and ignorance, which we can see clearly in, in, in anecdotal evidence across our country, or we can choose to educate ourselves toward becoming better humans. And a lot of that is it has to be a conscious choice. Like you, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. So that idea of I can point and guide even my own students, but I can't make them come to a, con a, a realm of consciousness. All I can do is give them, facilitate the steps to help them get there. So, for example, people are struggling to understand the complex historical narrative between black Americans and law enforcement. Often the same people who are unaware or less aware of the realities behind the first slave chasers, the Jim Crow laws, black codes, uh, peonage, um, police support for the KKK, both directly and indirectly, and long-documented realities in these communities. When I worked as a leasing consultant before I decided to go into academia, um, I was often like we had to take people to court um, for not paying rent and stuff. And among my office, um, my, my manager's team, it was never explicitly stated, but we knew that we knew which judges and we knew which police officers were Klan members. So when we knew that there was a Klan member judge coming, um, they would send a white employee to go represent us at court. And when there was a non-Klan member judge, then I would get to go. 
So it, it's about not reinforcing and letting those systems continue to exist in silence. And when people take the time to direct their own learning, when they take the time to self-learn, they get those oh wow moments. You know, they're, they're, and there's stages to that that I've even identified among my students. Sometimes they first they start off with denial, maybe, and cognitive dissonance. No, 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 that that's not how that happened, or that's not what that was about. You know, followed by anger. I, I, a lot of my students get to the point where they get angry that they weren't taught this stuff. Like, how did we not learn about this in school? And then hopefully once they can get past that and sort of reflect past that, they can get towards that true thirst, that true thirst for knowing more and understanding more about the world. And that is really the sort of the, the joy and the drive of self-learning. You know, what are ways that institutions can, I guess, more effectively respond to things like systemic racism and implicit bias? Um, well, a lot of it is, again, comes down to, to action. Um, I have, in just the last few years, um, first as an adjunct instructor and, and on the East Coast and now here, I've been in so many meetings meant to address these issues. Um, I, we meet every month. We discuss the same topics we always discuss. We draft white papers. We produce reports. We share experiences. We bring in experts. And then next year, we do the exact same thing all over again. And the year after that, and the year after that. Um, we continue reflecting. We get stuck in that reflection stage and don't actually make change. And that is really the only way to address systemic racism and implicit bias um, at the institutional level is through intentionally creating change. So people of color have been organizing, we've been researching, teaching, and publishing on these topics for a really long time on campuses and in businesses across the country. People of color are doing extra service and work around diversity, equity, and inclusion far more than their non-POC colleagues for no compensation. The path to success when it comes to ending systemic injustice, it's not a secret. It's been written about for a really long time. But we need to actually take those first steps towards change. So, you know, the, the people at the top of the system, whether they choose to, to, to do so or not, they benefit from the system as it stands. That's what privilege is about. Um, you know, it's harder to give support when it means that you're going to have to give up a system from which you have benefited and which maybe still benefits you and your family. So institutionally, we need less Band-Aids. We need less band-aids that are intended to placate faculty of color or, or workers of color, particularly black and indigenous people of color. So things like listening sessions, public PR statements, working groups that never end, um, you know, putting up uh, black-centered art in an institution, things like that send a message of support. But as I mentioned before, without actual action, they're just performative. So for change to happen, someone has to give something up. So we're talking about enactment of substantive policies, changing of practices. Uh, in our case in higher ed, that would be marketing, recruitment, retention, tenure, pay scale. Everything needs to be reviewed separately and holistically. And as educators, we don't get to opt out. We shouldn't get to opt out of training intended to address um, injustice and bias. Because when we opt out, we say that we think that we know that there is all that we need to know. And then we end up maintaining and reproducing these systems of violence um, throughout our, our communities. So it's really a, a matter of making the choice that this needs to happen and not stopping there. And I think most institutions 
um, both commercial and educational, that's where they stop. They say, this is what needs to happen. But if we do this, this is going to make things really uncomfortable for the rest of us. So how can we kind of meet them halfway? And then nothing actually gets done. You know, I don't want to ask too personal of a question, but it's it's something I've been thinking about more generally. But you, you brought it up that, you know, you have a, a young child and you talked to him about the events like what was happened um, with the killing of George Floyd. And it, it reminds me of, I think, this thing that I've thought about recently where it's conversations that, um, you know, parents that are, or are you know, communities of color, the parents um, of them, the conversations that they have to have with their children um, about the police that, I, I'm just going to be honest, I think uh, that white people don't have with their children. You know, what, what do you talk about, um, you know, with your child about police or about racism more broadly? Um, well, I, I honestly, I talk to him about everything. Um, I started talking to him, talking to him about these things. Um, the first time someone right here in Vermillion, uh, I, I had just moved here and I was going to get food to eat out uh, at a local restaurant. And I had my two-year-old in my hand and someone literally like looked at me, made a comment and spit on me. And I remember being really angry for a minute, um, but I had already paid for my food. So uh, you know, I went out to the car and I called my partner and I said, you know what, you, you need to come down here because um, my partner is white. And I said, you need to come down here and get this food because I'm not going back in there. Um, so from that moment, I realized that I had to have, I thought I would have more time, I guess, until he was older. But that's when I realized that I wouldn't, you know, um, or when I went to the post office and he saw like a, a, a dark skin, like my complexion, hand just a poster, like, you know, hey, post office, you can write checks and mail stuff, just a very generic marketing campaign. And he went, Mom, is that you? And I went, oh, no, honey, there's there's other brown people, I, I promise. Like, you know, I'll, I'll find you some. We'll, we'll, we'll go find some that you can meet. There's others like Mommy. Mommy's not the only one. Um, you know, but, but having those conversations, and generally most of the conversations I've had with him have come up because of miseducation outside of my home. So, um, you know, um, I'll hear a story or see something. Somebody will make a comment like, you know, Martin Luther King was a great guy, and then he died on this day. And I'm like, okay, honey, um, yes, he did die, but we also look the most important part of the story is that he didn't just die. It's not like he just fell over and died. Like someone killed him because they disagreed with his belief system, the way that he looked, that kind of stuff. And, and those things are important. I'm not going to let my son go into first grade believing that, Thanksgiving was a happy party um, between two groups because that's a lie. And I promised my son when I, he was born that I would never lie to him. So I, it's about for me finding a way to not dumb down the information, but to, to take out the key important facts um, that, that are critical at that age. And then as he gets older, adding in more and more of those details as it becomes more appropriate. I mean, people do it all the time with the birds and the bees. So it's the same idea of, of sort of engaging with him because I, I fear for him. He is um, much fairer than I am, but and he has really long hair. That for for people who, for people who are black, they can look at him and see that he is biracial. But for the average American who is not aware of those those subtle differences, he's just a black kid. Doesn't matter what his his Irish grandmother believes he is still a black kid in this country, in this one drop rule context. So I fear for him. 
Um, he already knows that if mommy gets pulled over by police, what he needs to do is be quiet, don't yell, please don't, don't make mommy have to turn around and talk to you. I need you to sit there and be quiet. Um, and I, I live in a relatively, the, the police, in, 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 um, I've never had an issue with the police in this area. Um, they've always been very nice. Uh, but at the same point, I don't know who I could encounter and the things that may be going through that person's mind. So I need him to be safe. I need him to know that people will treat him differently. I need him to know that he can't act out the same way that his white classmate may act out because a teacher might assume that he's acting out because he's black. And he needs to know that before he gets put in those situations so he's not caught unaware. You know, you've mentioned a couple of times, and I, I know we've probably gone on too long, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time, um, but sort of the problematic way that Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy is sometimes talked about. Um, could you help us unpack that a little bit? I mean, I, I too see, I feel like, you know, you quotes that are shared that end up being sort of like, you know, definitive in, in terms of what you're supposed to think about civil rights. I mean, what what is the best way to think about his legacy? I think we need to, to share his whole legacy. Otherwise, we're doing him a, a true disservice. So, yeah, there were some amazing things that he did in terms of um, not uh, it, the, the pacifist part of him that we see sort of heavily pushed towards our children. Um, that is a lot to be proud of. He did a lot to get people to come together. But he wasn't the first. Um, he wasn't even the only person that that movement was centered on. But he became a figurehead for a variety of reasons. And, for example, one, one um, meme that was going around the Internet um, around the, um, the protests around the George Floyd murder um, was a, a clip of Martin Luther King uh, crossing the Selma Bridge with the group holding hands, very sort of quietly, um, peacefully protesting. And there were people all over the place saying, see, you know, back then at least he knew how to peacefully protest. Like, look at him. Um, you know, they knew how to do it right. These, these kids are coming in and they're causing trouble. But then they don't tell us the story about five minutes after that picture was taken. 